0: Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I am Marilyn Ritchie and am joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Jason and I plan to take turns as hosts leading the discussion. I am Marilyn Ritchie and it is great to be back to host episode 13, our 14th episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sitting next to me virtually is co-host Jason Moore and behind the scenes is our talented sound engineer, Michael Stauffer. We are excited to be back after a short break from recording. Jason, what have you been up to since our last recording?
1: Hi, Marilyn. Hi, Michael. It's uh, great to see you both again and great to be recording again. Um, on a personal note, let me say it's been a very snowy February here in Philadelphia. We've had a lot of snow. In fact, I, I would say it snowed almost the entire month and uh, we're well above average for snowfall this year after having no snow last year. So we had a real winter this year in Philly. So that's kind of nice. Um Winter is the time uh, I teach. I teach a course called Special Topics in Biomedical Informatics, which is um, a kind of a journal club style course. Uh, The students read papers and present them, and then we have class discussion about the topics. And we have three segments this year, one on artificial intelligence, one on fairness and bias in machine learning, and then uh, a third one on precision medicine, which you're you're helping with, Marilyn. Um, so the class has been going really well. One of the things I love about the class is the diversity of students. And this is a required course for our certificate and master's degree programs in biomedical informatics here at Penn Medicine. And uh, those programs are really targeted mostly at clinicians, so we get a lot of medical uh, residents and fellows and Uh, some nursing students and and certainly students from other, from PhD programs taking the course, but it's always a nice mix and always, we always have great discussions and I love the clinical perspective that the clinicians uh, bring to the table. So that's been fun. Um, And we actually uh, just the last uh, class was on um, IBM Watson and we had a really great discussion about Watson and we have a news item about Watson uh, a little bit later in the podcast. Um, we've also been uh, continuing to work on our pen AI method and software for automated machine learning. And we've started a new project to um, use pen AI for teaching machine learning. And we're, uh, we've created a special version of pen AI that will fit on an SD card. Uh, so you can boot it from a Raspberry Pi. And we think this will make it accessible to high school students and college students around the world. And and we're especially targeting developing countries, for example, or or groups uh, of lower income. Um, And so I think Penn AI AI will be perfect uh, for that purpose. So I'll keep you updated about that when that's available, should be available soon. Uh, also got word that our human pancreas analysis program uh, grant uh, got a fundable score and is going to be renewed by uh, the National Institute of uh, Digestive uh, and Kidney Diseases, NIDDK. Um, and it's a big grant, um, more than $30 million uh, over the next five years. And, and uh, I lead the bioinformatics component of that and Uh, It's been an exciting project and happy to see that get uh, refunded. So we very much look forward to working with the team over the next five years on that. Um, We've also been working on several faculty recruitments. Um, You know, we're under a a hiring freeze like a lot of places are, but we had a couple um, recruitments, what we call recruitments of opportunity um that we got permission to pursue and so hopefully hoping to get those wrapped up uh soon um but if uh if those folks come i think they're going to be great additions to our informatics faculty and bring a lot of of new skills and new expertise uh to our our uh, great group here at penn medicine i've also given a couple talks at other universities i gave a talk at cincinnati children's hospital Uh, And one at the University at Buffalo in their Department of Biomedical Informatics, and uh, had a great time with both groups. Thank you so much for your hospitality. It's been—I have to say—it's been really fun giving talks uh, at other institutions uh, virtually, and um, I don't know, it's just so much easier than traveling. Um, And I, I find it not not quite as rewarding as being there in person, but almost as rewarding. Um, I'll also mention that uh, I'm I'm in two departments. I'm in Maryland's Department of Genetics. Uh, I'm also in the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology, and Informatics. And in that department, which we call DBEI, um, we have a new chair that just started February first. His name's Enrique Schisterman. He's a epidemiologist from the NIH, uh, specializing in in women's health and reproductive health and We're really excited that he's here to lead our department into the future. And finally, um, I was a guest on the biotech podcast hosted by Harry Houston, and had a great time with Harry talking about artificial intelligence and automated machine learning and other related issues. Harry was a great host and asked a lot of great questions and that should be coming out soon. Marilyn, what have you been up to?
0: Well, it it's been a snowy month here. I actually wasn't even thinking about the snow until you mentioned it earlier. And I just want to mention um, to expand on that, The there were several days in Philly where if you were sitting inside, it almost looked like you were part of a snow globe and somebody was shaking it. The flakes were just so big and just kind of almost going sideways and up and down through the air. It wasn't even like a steady fall. It was mesmerizing. So um, I've really enjoyed it. Actually, I'm ready for it to be done now. It, it's time for the the temperature to be above fifty. I'd like some sun and some green outside, but uh, but it was enjoyable. Uh, I'm ju- I'm just done with it now. Um, other than that, uh, it's been a lot of uh, educational activities lately. Um, this seems to be the season where students are really having a lot of their thesis committee meetings. I don't know if it. It's just unusual this year. I don't remember having quite so many kind of week after week after week. Um, I don't know if it's the post holidays or if it's schedules got synced up differently because of the pandemic, but I've had so many student thesis committee meetings, which I I absolutely love them. It's so fun to see the progress that students have made and a few have been my own students. and I have a few coming up. Um, I've been on some thesis committees where the student defended recently and then some where they're earlier on, Um, but it's just been, you know, really fun to watch the progress that the students have made, and I've been so impressed with how much they've done in spite of the pandemic. You know, I, I kind of was fully prepared for most students to have slowed down a bit, and I think that would have been understandable and totally acceptable given, you know, everything that's happened with the pandemic, but all of the students whose committees I've been on have really made great progress in their projects. So that it was a lot of fun. I also uh, have been um, giving some talks. So I participated in the National Human Genome Research Institute genomic medicine 13 meeting. Um, I was on a panel. I spoke about the use of genetic sequence across the lifespan. And it was a really interesting conversation, really thinking about you know, what are the opportunities and challenges around having someone sequence early in life and then being able to use it for prediction of risk, for clinical care, and, you know, especially thinking about how people kind of transition across different types of health systems. How would that data follow them? And we had conversations about, you know, what other data types follow people wherever they go and how could we maybe leverage some of those kind of technologies or policies to think about this. Um, It was an interesting conversation. There's a lot of work to be done around storage of of genetic information and clinical decision support in electronic health record systems, but but it was a a great topic and and fascinating to think about. I've also um, participated in two recruitment panels for the genomics and computational biology graduate program at Penn. We've done two sessions, um, two different recruitment weekends. And, you know, typically the students get to interact with faculty and there are meals or a happy hour. And, and because the recruitment events were virtual, we couldn't do any of that. And so we had how did we get here panels where they had four or five faculty just kind of tell our story about, um, you know, how we got to where we are, what were some of the, the challenges and the hurdles, and, you know, did we always know we would end up a professor at at a research, you know, academic medical center, and it was fun both to think back um, about how I got here, but also hearing everybody else's stories. And uh, it, I had a lot of fun in the second panel in particular. Um, I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, he was on both panels, but we really hit the. Um, the fact that both Ryan Urbanowitz, another faculty member in DBEI, um, also trained with Jason. Um, so for those of you who didn't know, Jason was my PhD advisor You know, a million years ago now, it feels like, <laughs> but Ryan and I, we both kind of talked about you and our story and it was really fun. You know, He had some pictures of you from the Dartmouth days. So I had to dig up like really quick while he was talking some Vanderbilt pictures. And um, it was just, it was really neat. Um, kind of, you know, reflecting and, and talking about our grad school days. Um, We, we didn't overlap, but um, just, we had really similar experiences with, you know, being introduced to this whole world of informatics by you and it not being something we ever thought we would do. It just wasn't even on our radar and you opened up a whole world of it for both of us.
1: You guys were Uh, only, you guys were only a few years apart.
0: Right. Yeah. We, I was kind of, you know, right. You know, finished up, and then you left Vanderbilt not long after that, and then he started very soon after you got to Dartmouth, so we we almost overlapped, but, but barely, uh, just barely didn't. Um, what else? I was on the, um, we had an advisory board meeting. I'm on the International Scientific Advisory Board for the UK Biobank, and this was the first year that I was able to participate. Um, I, I actually, this is the first year I was invited to participate in their advisory board, and it was, really fascinating to just see how how that whole operation works kind of on the back end you know I I'm very familiar with the data as a a user and a person who has applied for access and I analyze the data and we write up papers on the data but just seeing behind the scenes some of the decisions they have to make and things that they need to think about um, it was really cool it's quite an operation and they're just doing such great things for the scientific community. And I'm really excited to see some of the things that they are having coming down the pike, especially for researchers from underrepresented groups and specifically kind of from universities that maybe don't have the same level of infrastructure. They have a lot um, coming online soon that will facilitate accessing the data without having to download the data locally to your own institution. I think that's going to really open up a lot of opportunities for researchers that otherwise, you know, they just don't have the storage and compute capability to work with, you know, EHR and genomic data on 500,000 people, but they're building that infrastructure for people to use it, you know, in the cloud, which I think is going to be great.
1: We should, uh, we should do a segment on UK Biobank, maybe in the next episode or two and and really kind of dig into it a little bit, share our experiences. And now that you have some inside knowledge about how it works and, uh, tell our listeners about about UK Biobank, its advantages and disadvantages. I think it could be interesting.
0: Yeah, I agree. It'd be a great discussion topic. Uh, what else? I've been, lots of paperwork. Um, so I've been reviewing a lot of papers for journals that um, <laughs> I try not to do more than one, you know, one review a month or two reviews a month. And somehow I got myself into this situation where I ended up with like five or six over the last month but I just kept getting sent these papers and I'm like, oh my gosh, this sounds so interesting. I have to review it. And then I said yes to too many. And so it made me really busy, but just, you know, that's kind of how I decide if I'm going to review a paper, if I read the abstract and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to read this, then I review it, but I've gotten way too many. I've actually now been like, no, I have to say no, I have to finish the five I already agreed to do. Um, and... Similarly, I'm working on our own papers. I've been doing a lot of editing. Uh, My students uh, and postdocs did a lot of writing over the the holidays and into January. And so February, it's been a lot of editing and writing. Um, And then lastly, just over the past week, I've given um, two speaking speaking engagements that were just both really a lot of fun. Um, One, Penn had its first um, global diversity symposium. that it was um, a two day symposium really focused on enhancing human diversity in genomics research. And I gave a talk about polygenic risk scores and whether they are for some of us or for all of us. And it was a, a really fun talk to put together. And I got a lot of interesting feedback and conversation about it. You know, really just thinking about how do we do a better job of making sure that we're developing technology that is not um, kind of recapitulating systemic bias and racism that we see in a lot of other programs. Um, So it was a great symposium. It will be online Um, sometime within the next few weeks. They recorded the entire symposium. And that's something that um, we could put a link to the show notes whenever it comes online. And then lastly, I was a panelist on a PBS TV show called Keystone Edition Health. It was my first television appearance. Um, It was a a PBS channel in central and and northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, So we didn't even get it on TV here in Philly. Um, I participated by Zoom, but it was really a lot of fun. I've never done anything like that. And uh, I hope I get to do stuff like that again in the future. It, It was fun.
1: Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you're listening to us for the first time, you can find us on the web at bmipodcast.org. And you can leave us feedback by email at feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is podcast, And we have a Facebook page. Be sure to leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Reviews help us improve the podcast and also help uh, improve our visibility.
0: My name is Genevieve Melton-Mukes, and I am a professor of surgery at the University of Minnesota and chief analytics and care innovation officer at Fairview Health Services. You are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is strategies for picking journals. Jason will introduce the topic.
1: Yeah, thanks Marilyn. Um, You know, I I see picking a journal very much as a multi-objective optimization problem. So anytime we've written a paper and are thinking about where to publish it, of course, We think about the impact of the work. Um, We think about whether the work uh, should be open access. Is that a priority? Uh, What is the cost? Um, Certainly open access comes with costs and different journals have different publication fees. So that's sometimes a consideration. Uh, Something that's very important to me is uh, the review time. Different journals have different reputations for how long it takes to review a paper. And some of that really depends on the editor-in-chief and the associate editors and how aggressive they are at enforcing their uh, their review times and 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 tracking down delinquent reviewers and making sure they get their reviews in on time. And if they don't, having a backup plan, reviewing the paper themselves or finding another reviewer So review time is very important to me. I I, uh, don't have much patience for reviews that drag on for months. And then there's the production time. So I know some journals that have a very rapid review time, but then once it gets into production, it takes forever. And so production time is another um, important consideration. And then, of course, uh, I kind of tie all that together into what I call the hassle factor. You know, there, there are journals that, I love to publish in because they're, they're just always easy. You get timely reviews, you get thoughtful reviews when the paper's accepted, it's published online within a couple of days or a week. And, and it's just a painless process. And then other journals, it's every step of the way is painful. I'm dealing with a couple of those right now, which I could, I could tell you stories about and uh, so that's that's what I call the hassle factor. Just sort of my overall impression. Um, and there are journals that I just never submit papers to anymore because I know the hassle factor is just is just too high. And and so I would say the review time and production time are probably uh, the two most important in my mind in thinking about where to submit a paper. And, and part of this is, you know, it's it's our responsibility as scientists to communicate the work that we're doing in a timely way. And so once you've completed a piece of work, and you've written it up, and you're ready to submit it, then you've, you've come to the conclusion that the work is polished, and it's ready for prime time, and you're ready to get it out there, and you're ready for the world to read it. And so at that point, you want to get the paper out as quickly as possible. You don't want it to sit in review and production for a year, a year and a half, sometimes even two years. I've had papers take two years to get published um, mostly because of delays and, and, you know, review issues. So, so, so that's kind of my philosophy is, is it's, it's our job as scientists to get our work once we're convinced of it's of sufficient quality out there as quickly as possible so that others can benefit from it. It serves no good for a paper to, to be in process for a year or two. That just slows science down. Others can't benefit from the work. Now, archive, uh, the preprint uh, servers have have certainly remedied some of that because you can put your paper out as a preprint so others can benefit from it immediately while it's going through the peer review process. So that's certainly one one way to maybe not quite as put as as much weight on review time and production time. So anyway, those are the those are the kinds of things I balance impact, open access, cost, review time, production time and hassle. So I kind of go through that checklist in my head when I'm thinking about how to submit a paper. And and I you know these days I used to you know have very strong opinions about where to send papers and and these days is As long as the I know the review time and production time isn't going to be too long, I'm I'm starting to let students and postdocs make more of the publishing decisions and 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 send papers where they want to send the papers. Uh, You know, we always have a discussion about it. But if they feel strongly they want their paper in a particular journal and that's important to them for their career or their visibility or they just think it's a good fit, then I'm certainly open to those ideas. So that's I would say another optimization point is. Um, you know, where the where the uh, co-authors um, want to send the paper. So Marilyn, I, I know you've thought a lot about this. What do, what do you think?
0: Yeah, those were, those were great. It was a great strategy. I've never thought about it as a Pareto optimization or multi-objective optimization algorithm the way that, that you describe it. I really like that. And I, I guess I do the same thing. I just never really thought about it in such an algorithmic way. Um. I have a lot of the same points, but but maybe I'll just expand on them a little bit. Um, to me, one of the the most important things, especially when students and postdocs um, or junior faculty are involved, is the timing. Um, you know, is the work um, well, one, is the work really timely and has to get out quickly because there are other studies that you know are coming out you know then in the next year that would eliminate the excitement and interest in your study for example so uk biobank is a great example there were 50,000 whole exome sequences available for a couple of years and everyone knew that the the next tranche of 200,000 exomes was coming well you know if you haven't submitted your paper on the 50,000 reviewers are probably going to say why didn't didn't you use 200,000 you know so It kind of depends on the data that you're using and and is it important to get it out quickly? In which case you might go to one of the journals that's a little faster in terms of their review and production time because the timing is important. Also the timing of the people. So are they, um, do they need that paper to graduate? Do they need that paper uh, to be on their CV when they're going up for promotion? Or are they about to go on a job search and having those papers is really important for their CV. I think those are important things to consider. Maybe not above, I, I guess mine are not necessarily in priority order. There are a few other points I'll make later that probably are more important, but but this is one to the individual that is very important. And you really don't want to put something, you know, into a, a peer review process that typically takes two years with a graduate student who's trying to graduate by you know the summer of, you know, you're in this the winter and they want to graduate in four to six months. You, you can't wait two years. You have to do something faster than that, especially if the graduate program requires that that particular paper is accepted. So timing, um you know when do you need it to come out with respect to the people who are leading it? and then also with respect to the the results, is it something that you know time is at the essence to get it out? Uh, another thing that I consider is that the impact of the work and and then trying to match that with the impact of the journal and, I find that sometimes this is tricky. It's kind of a balance of the the quantity of results that you have and like, do you have enough for a paper? Do you have too much for one paper such that some things are gonna get buried in the supplement that are really important details? Um, Are the results really exciting or are they just modest? Um, Some people talk about, you know, choosing the impact as a, you know, you should always, focus on the quality of the quality over quantity is the saying. And I don't think we ever aim to publish low quality work or in a low quality journal. So I don't actually don't like that quality. It's, you know, what is the, the excitement around the results? And then I focus even more so on how, how many of these results do I want in the main paper that are really important. And there are times that We will go to a lower impact factor journal and split something into two papers, not to pad the CV with two papers, but because there are two stories there. And if you try to mash them together, you lose important parts of the results that it's just too much content in one paper. Um, I talk about this, I actually did a podcast episode about kind of how to decide when a paper is ready on the Calm podcast. It was episode, I think 23. Um, And I talk a lot about this, that the figuring out, like, is it one paper? Is it two papers? I think that, um, and that then drives what journal, because some journals are very short, you know, you get four figures and tables and everything else is supplement. When I have really important results that it's really important that you see all the figures, I just don't submit to one of those journals. Even if I think it's exciting enough, I don't want the important work buried in a supplement because Quite frankly, some people don't read the supplements. You're supposed to, but not everybody does. Um, I look for um, similar types of papers and journals. So, uh, if you know, often it, there's nothing quite like what you're publishing, but something in a similar theme. I try to look for journals um, that you know have things of that kind of domain or theme or interest area, especially if I want something to get out quickly. Uh, sometimes it's nice to go to a journal that you know they've never published anything like this before but sometimes that either takes a lot longer and more rounds of peer review or they aren't interested in it and that's why they haven't published anything like that before so i do tend to try to look for journals that you know for example if you're working on an algorithm and software paper i i don't send those to a, a journal that doesn't have other software papers even you know typically it's completely different types of software but i try to look for for complementary types of publications. Um, what else? I, I do try to encourage the people in my lab to aim high in terms of a journal. So if you think, you know, you have three journals on your list that you think would be right, I think it's great to try to aim for the, you know, the highest impact one, the one that you think would have the most kind of splash for your paper, unless you're in a big hurry, then you go for which one of the three is the fastest and has the best turnaround time um i it also depends on the personality i should add so i have uh trained people who don't deal with rejection as well and so um when you aim for a high impact journal you have to assume you know 75 to 85 percent of the time it's going to be rejected outright or with a rounder review and if you're the type of person that doesn't handle rejection well well one you should really work on that because that's part of being a scientist but Um, If you know that it's just going to be like another rejection that's going to, you know, just be another failure brick on top of your head, then maybe just aim, you know, a little bit lower to to not deal with that disappointment. Um, And then the last thing that I think about is what type of paper are you trying to write and then try to find a journal that, you know, is appropriate. So do you have really exciting results or are they just modest? Do you have a hot new informatics method? Um, Do you have negative results? But you still think they're important to publish because, um, you know, it's a really important question, or there are lessons learned in there. I really try to encourage people in my lab to find journals that will take papers that are more perspectives or lessons learned, because, you know, if we've spent six to eighteen months on a problem and in the end it didn't work, I think that's useful for the scientific community to know, you know, these algorithms don't work for this problem, or. You know, this, the question was this, and the answer was no. We looked in many data sets and tried different ways, and it was always no. Um, and then also, is it a more methodologic paper or a more clinical or biological paper? And, you know, it you can't take a biology paper and a medical paper and submit it to a, an informatics journal and expect it to have the same kind of review process and impact as sending it to a medical or biological journal and vice versa. Uh, You know, the biology journals often don't want our informatics methodsy papers. They want the discoveries and the interpretation. Um, And actually, that's a great way to to get two papers out of a, a really exciting project, is that you write one that's a little more informatics focused to an informatics journal that has an application. And then you have the medical application that's written by the physicians or the biologists and your method is kind of just a methodology and, and the two can cite one another. Um, so those are some of the things I think about.
1: Yeah, those are, um, great, great points, Marilyn. So I'm, I'm not going to call out any journals that I don't like. Um, I don't think that would be very nice, but, um, I can say one of my all time favorite journals to send to in my entire career is, is human genetics. I love that journal. Um, it has an impact factor of about six, almost six. So it's a very solid genetics journal. Uh, it's about the same as PLOS genetics. Um, and, uh, if you think about, uh, for context, the American journal of human genetics has an impact factor of about 10. So it's a, it's a, it's a very good genetics journal. And I just have had a wonderful experience my entire career. I've probably published, I don't know, 20 or 30 papers in that journal and, and I just know when I when I want to get something out quickly with minimal hassle in a solid journal and it's genetics related, that's where I send it is to human genetics. Uh, that's kind of my kind of my go to for these kind of moderate, moderate uh, uh, impact papers. And 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 the papers I've published there um, have been very well cited and the impact has generally been higher than. The impact of the journal itself. So I know the papers are getting read and they're getting noticed and they're getting cited and and uh, But they just have a very rapid no nonsense review process. Uh, The production process is extremely short. I remember sending a paper there um, From submission to final online publication was three months And, and in that time, that three months I had, I sent, I sent two papers on the same day, one, one to human genetics and one to another competing journal. The other competing journal, I hadn't even received the first review yet after three months. And the paper that I sent to human genetics was published. It was already out within three months. And uh, the other one eventually got accepted, but it took like six months instead of three months. So anyway, that's kind of the thought process I go through is, I have my favorite go-to hassle-free journals and that's where I like to send things. Even, even if the impact of the journal is not quite as high as the impact of the paper, just because, you know, we publish a lot of papers and it takes time. The hassle factor just takes time. And, um, I'll just tell two quick journal stories that I'm dealing with right now. We sent two, and these are short papers. We sent two short papers, um, one was an application of one of our automated machine learning methods to a new type of data, and we sent it to a special section of a journal looking for these kind of new, out-of-the-box, different uh, applications. And um, and then the other one was a, a software paper, uh, a short software paper that we s- submitted. We submitted both papers in October. Neither one has been accepted yet. They're both still uh Uh, Both have been reviewed and are awaiting final decisions, but it's almost six months later now, and it's just been a horrific process with both journals. But I can tell you, I probably will never submit another paper to either one of those journals. The, The experience has been really, really troubling. And these are short papers. These aren't long, complicated, difficult to review papers, right? These should have been wrapped up in a month or two. So anyway, that's kind of, that's how I think about it is just, I would say in that Pareto optimization, uh, the hassle factor probably weighs more heavily than anything else.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree. The And one other thing that I thought of, um, back to, you mentioned cost. And I, uh, as you were telling your story, I wanted to mention uh, one journal story as well. And I'm not going to call out the journal, like you said, it's not nice, but it's a cautionary tale about just paying very close attention to the cost at journals and reading the fine print very very carefully so i had a paper that i published last year that was partially funded by an nih grant and i felt like it was very important for the paper to be open access and so when going through the publication you know it was now accepted how do you want to publish it I selected the option for open access, which was $3,000. That's okay. We're going to put it on the grant. It's appropriate. I subsequently got a bill for another $4,500 for color figure charges, page charges, and supporting documents charges that apparently I checked boxes on a website and signed it electronically. So it it absolutely is my fault that I did not read clearly, but as I was selecting, I thought once you selected open access, those went away because it's an online paper. You don't need pages. Nope, they wanted me to pay $7,500 to publish a paper. So I was able to argue with the publisher and got the the other charges removed and only paid the open access, but just something to pay attention to. I I thought to myself, in what world do we pay $7,500 to publish a short paper? This is insanity. So just pay very close attention, certainly when you're picking the journal and if funding is is tight. You know, it, it is several thousand dollars at a lot of journals, but really Play Coast pay close attention when they get accepted because they, the publishing language, is just not clear. And I figure if I made that mistake, I'm probably not the only one. And other people probably have accidentally paid for both when you're really not supposed to.
1: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that story, Marilyn. It, it Publishing has gotten a lot more expensive. That's for sure. Especially with journals, you know, everybody wanting open access and journals trying to figure out how to pay for that. Uh, so yeah, I I think that is an important consideration, especially for junior faculty that don't have a lot of resources, a lot of grant money. But it's a good thing to keep in mind if you're a if you're a uh, a postdoc negotiating your first faculty position, a startup package. You know, be sure and put a line item in there for open access journal fees. So you know, the typical open access fee is what twenty five hundred dollars to three thousand dollars a paper, and so if you're you know going to be publishing three papers a year for your first three years that's you know that's almost thirty thousand dollars in open access fees so be sure and get that in your startup package and budget it because you don't have grants to pay for it and you know thirty thousand dollars is um you know that's almost a a graduate student stipend uh for a year so that's you know that's all that's starting to be a lot of money for a uh, a junior faculty member
0: It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Jason will get us started with the first item.
1: Thanks, Marilyn. Um, The the National Institutes of Health here in the United States regularly publishes uh, findings of scientific misconduct. And I've been reading these on and off my entire career. I I find them fascinating, the crazy things uh, that uh, NIH-funded scientists do. Uh, and it's very educational, I think, um, you know, and, and, and especially now in an era where we're really focused on ethical behavior and ethics and science. Um, I think it's good, good to keep up on, uh, the unethical things that, that others are doing. And, and so the, um, This particular misconduct was reported by the NIH on February 9th. Um, So, uh, and I'll I'll just read from the report. Uh, It says their Office of Research Integrity finds that respondent, the the name was redacted, knowingly and intentionally falsified, fabricated, and plagiarized the whole content of six papers and eight manuscripts. Falsely created fictitious author names and affiliations without listing himself as an author to disguise himself from being the offender and submitting them for publication in bioarchive and med archive, with um, falsely assembling random paragraphs of text, tables, and figures from previous publications and manuscripts, all for the purpose of improving his citation metrics. So here's a guy completely fabricating papers, posting them online, citing himself as a way to drive up his own citation metrics. So really, really interesting story. And he he of course, you know, there are repercussions um, to these uh, findings of scientific misconduct. For example, he will not be able to engage the NIH for funding for ten years uh, after this. So anyway, um, uh, there's a link in the show notes and. Um, I definitely recommend reading through these regular NIH reports.
0: Wow. 10 years can really impact someone's career. Oh, that's a long time. All right. The next item, the New York times reported on February 9th, that Ariana Rosenbluth died at the age of 93. She was one of the developers of the Metropolis Hastings algorithm. If you aren't familiar with it, here is a description from Wikipedia. Metropolis-Hastings algorithm is a Markov chain Monte Carlo or MCMC method for obtaining a sequence of random samples from a probability distribution from which direct sampling is difficult. The sequence can be used to approximate the distribution, for example, to generate a histogram or to compute an integral, for example, an expected value. Metropolis Hastings and other MCMC algorithms are generally used for sampling from multi dimensional distributions, especially when the number of dimensions is high. This is a really important method used by so many things. And uh, wow, sad that she's passed away, but she made quite a contribution.
1: Yeah, I remember learning about the Metropolis-Hastings algorithm when I was a graduate student. So it was really fun to read this report and and to learn a little bit more about her and the and the history of this algorithm. Okay, uh, next up, um, Marilyn and I have previously talked about imposter syndrome on the podcast, and and of course we've we've mentioned that it's very common. We all have have experienced imposter syndrome at different times in our career. And so I was happy to see that uh, a Penn graduate student group uh, surveyed more than 25 graduate students at Penn and asked if they had imposter syndrome when they came to Penn. 74% of the 25 responded as having it when they arrived or still having it. And another 11% indicated that they might have it. That's a, a, a remarkable number, 75 to 85% of Ten graduate students uh, either have or are currently or might be experiencing imposter syndrome. And I'm not surprised by these numbers at all, but uh, I'm really happy to see this come out into the open. And I think, you know, we need to do a better job as faculty um, helping students understand that everybody feels the same way. This is normal and and to to help, um, you know, help alleviate it as much as we can.
0: Yeah, I am sad to say I'm not surprised either, but I've been trying to just tell my students and postdocs when it happens to me. Just you know, like, hey guys, just so you know, here's what I dealt with before this thing happened or while I'm dealing with this, just so they know, you know, they do need to learn how to deal with it because it doesn't go away, even when you're a tenured full professor, you still get it from time to time, or at least I do.
1: Yep, we all do.
0: Uh, the next item, there is a new paper in PLOS computational biology that lists 10 simple rules for getting started on Twitter. And uh, here are the 10 rules. I thought these are great. Number one, start using it. Number two, use it to discover opportunities on academia. For example, funding opportunities. Number three, tweet and retweet. Number four, learn the rules. Number five, protect yourself by muting or blocking offensive tweeters. That's such a good one. Uh, Number six, build a community. Number seven, use it to interface with real life. For example, meet other tweeters at a conference. You know, Back in the day when we had conferences in person, they would have uh, tweet ups where uh, tweeters could meet one another and hopefully we'll see those again in the future. Uh, number eight, spread your message or accomplishment. Number nine, be a real person. And number 10, use it responsibly. Think before you tweet. Um, I thought this was a great list. and a Good reminder to me, I, I kind of am a fair weather tweeter for periods of time, I tweet a bunch and then I get really quiet. I need to to do better and get on there all the time.
1: Yeah, I agree. that's a that's a great list. And um, you know I, I remember when I first started going to conferences back in the mid1990s, that was before smartphones. It was before it was really before email was popular. We didn't have lap, you know we didn't really have laptops that we were carrying all over the place as much. Um, you know, there just wasn't Wi-Fi everywhere. And so when you went to a conference um you know the only way to connect with other people was through this message board so it was this big set of of basically uh little wooden cubbies uh, like mailboxes and they would have these little sheets of paper with pencils all over the place and you would go and you'd write down a note you would say hey Marilyn, would you like to get together and talk about that paper this afternoon? I'm free at four o'clock and I'll, you know, I'll be here at the message box and you would fold it up and you would put it in the R slot for Richie and you would come by and check your box periodically and find the notes. And then you would leave me a note and we would eventually connect <laughs> and have our meeting. And that that's how we used to do it before smartphones and email and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of fun. All right, moving on, Um, I saw a great tweet recently from Dr. Raul Pacheco Vega, who is an associate professor in the Methods Lab of the Latin American Faculty for Social Sciences in Mexico. And his tweet uh, read, and I quote, my best advice for anyone in academia, be it undergraduate, a graduate student, or a tenured full professor is don't be an asshole. That's it. That's the tweet. I just, I just loved this tweet. I thought it was right on, right on. uh, Great. Some of the best advice you could give anybody because boy, there's no shortage of, of a-holes in science.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's so good. And I mean, I would, I'd go one step further. My best advice for anyone is don't be an asshole. Just
1: period. (laughs) It doesn't matter
0: if you're in academia or not on Twitter. Don't be an asshole in real life. Don't be an asshole. So no, that's such a great tweet, uh, but so important on Twitter. You don't know who's reading your tweets. I mean, oh, yes, <laughs> so important. Uh, the next one, some of our informatics colleagues published a nice paper in JAMIA on gender representation in US biomedical informatics leadership and recognition. They collected data from public websites that are provided by AMIA on AMIA leadership positions and awardees. Uh, Some of the findings, men were more often in leadership positions and award recipients, and this was statistically significant. Men led 74.7% of academic informatics programs and 83.3% of clinical informatics fellowships. Uh, Just for frame of reference, the number of academic informatics programs, uh, men lead 71 of 95 of them. And the clinical informatics fellowships, it's 35 out of 42 programs. Within AMIA, men held 56.8% of leadership roles. That is thousand eighty-six out of 1,913, and received 64.1% of awards. That's 52 out or 59 out of 92. Uh, it, it's a great. Uh, analysis of these data, and I think it it shows we need to do a better job of um, promoting women and uh, continue, it looks like we're doing a better job of nominating women for awards, but we need to to keep that up and, and try to get it, you know, at the very least at 50-50. But, um, but yeah, definitely those leadership positions, we've got to get more women promoted.
1: Yeah, I think we've made progress in the field, but so much more work to do. And, and I think it's important, you know, as we address diversity issues, not to lose sight of women in science and to, you know, keep keep that at the forefront uh, of, of our minds. Okay. Um we we mentioned last time on the podcast uh the controversial firing of AI ethicist Temnet Gebru from Google. Reuters uh reported on February. Th- Third, uh, that some Google engineers have left the company as a re- result of how the company treated Gebru. Uh, and in this in this news piece, they wrote, and I quote, David Baker, a director focused on user safety, left Google last month after 16 years because Gebru's exit extinguished my desire to continue as a Googler, he said in a letter seen by, by the news outlet. Baker added, we cannot say we believe in diversity, and then ignore the conspicuous absence of many voices from within our walls. Software engineer Vinesh Cannon said Wednesday on Twitter that he had left the company on Tuesday because Google mistreated Gebru and April Christina Curley, a recruiter who has said she was wrongly fired last year. Both both Gebru and Curley identified as Black. So anyway the uh the controversies at Google continue and we have a link here in the show notes to this news article if you're interested but um and and if you follow uh Gebru's Twitter account she she has tons of tweets uh uh and is continuing to voice her opinions about how she was mistreated at Google and and the the what what she perceives as the uh, you know, the wrong things that Google's doing. And I, I don't know, I I just, I, I just find it hard to believe, you know, here's Google, one of the top companies in the world, one of the wealthiest companies in the world. Why, Why do they have to behave this way? Why, why do they, why do they need to treat their employees this way? I just don't understand it. But anyway, it's, it's an interesting issue and we'll continue to, to follow it. Yeah. Oh,
0: thanks for bringing that one to our attention. Uh, there's a tech feature in Nature from February 2nd on five reasons why researchers should love, learn to love the command line. Uh, one, to wrangle files, to repeat simple tasks across many files, Oh, that's so important. Uh, number two, to handle big data, it's much easier to process large files at the command line. To manipulate spreadsheets, it's easy to create workflows for n- manipulating spreadsheets so that you don't need to do it by hand. And in fact, I would add you shouldn't do it by hand because that's when we make mistakes and add errors into data. Uh, Number four, to parallelize your work. It's easy to send many jobs to a parallel computer. And to automate, use the cron command to schedule jobs when convenient. Uh, It's a great article, especially for those who are on the fence about how much time they should spend learning the command line. It's really a time saver and, and not only just time, but makes the work higher quality, less errors.
1: Yeah, this is something every student who works with big data, whether they consider themselves an informatician, a data scientist, or an experimental biologist, this is something that everybody needs to learn how to do. Uh, Very, very critical skill. Okay, last month, February, was Black History Month, and in honor, we would like to recognize and celebrate computer scientist and engineer Mark Dean who developed a number of landmark technologies for IBM, including the color PC monitor and the first gigahertz CPU chip. He holds three of the company's original nine patents. According to biography.com, Dean was born on March 2nd, 1957 in Jefferson city, Tennessee. Dean is credited in helping to launch the personal computer age with work that made the machines more accessible and more powerful. And I have a link here to the biography.com um, blurb about him. So thank you, uh, Mark Dean.
0: There's a piece in science from January 28th titled risk of being scooped drives scientists to shoddy methods. Uh, and here's a quote, Leonid tyokin a scientist at Eindhoven University of Technology learned early on to fear being scooped. He recalls emails from his undergraduate advisor that stressed the importance of being first to publish. We'd better hurry, we'd better rush. A new analysis by Tyoken and his colleagues demonstrates how risky that competition is for science. Rewarding researchers who publish first pushes them to cut corners, their model shows. And although some proposed reforms in science might help, the model suggests others could unintentionally exacerbate the problem. Tyokin and his colleagues published a paper in Nature Human Behavior last month titled Competition for Priority Harms the Reliability of Science but Reforms Can Help, where they present their results and recommendations. I think these are really important pieces to look at and to think about. You know, anytime I I hear language in the lab about being scooped, I try to, to stop the conversation immediately. It's just not something that I think we should focus on. You know, even if someone else publishes the work first, If you're the second paper to show the same thing, that's still important to validate that the result is real, that the algorithm really works. Most of the time, two papers are not the same. I think it's much more important to focus on high quality, ethically well done science, even at the risk of having the second paper rather than the first.
1: Of course, um, I've addressed that issue, Marilyn, by just working on crazy things that nobody else works on. And then you never run the risk of getting scooped.
0: <laughs> That's a great strategy.
1: Okay. Um, there's a really, really important piece in the New Yorker magazine from January 30th on how uh, Black Lives Matter came to academia the piece goes through some of the history and impact of the movement and discusses the Black Lives Matter hashtag. So, very important piece to read, and we have a link here uh, to that piece. Uh, there's also a great paper published um, in February uh, in the journal Genome Biology with the title Reevaluating Experimental Validation in the Big Data Era A Conceptual Argument by Jafari et al. And I I thought this paper was fascinating. So, and I had never really thought about this before. So this is kind of a new idea for me. They argue that the requirement for experimental validation of computational findings is a hindrance to science. And in fact, they, they actually flipped the argument around and asked the question whether we should require experimental biologists to validate their findings computationally before they publish. I love this piece. And I think it raises some really good questions for discussion. There is no doubt that the lines between Experiment experimentation and computation are getting more blurred, but I I don't know I think this might make a good really good discussion topic in the future, Marilyn and um, you know because we're we're as computational scientists we're we're all told hey have you have you experimentally validated that finding who why not ask the experimentalist that same question have you computationally validated your finding.
0: Yeah, we should definitely talk about that. That <laughs> is kind of flipping the the norm on its head. I like that, I like that a lot. Um, the next one, uh, there was an important commentary in Cell from February fourth that calls attention to the racial funding disparity by the NIH. The paper cites several published studies documenting funding disparities. For example, a paper by Arosheva et al. in Science Advances from last year shows that black applicant award rates are 55% of those for white principal investigators. This has a big impact on their careers. The authors call for the NIH director to acknowledge the problem and lay out a plan of action. They go on to make some specific recommendations, which include make diversity a review criterion, prioritize diverse teams for funding, identify grants from black PIs to bring forward to council for additional consideration, and to add more black PIs to review uh, or to review the grants. So to participate in the review panels. Um, there are numerous other important recommendations in this piece. It is a must read. Um, I, If you haven't looked at the paper, I strongly encourage you to do so. And the, the figures alone speak a thousand words. They are very telling and it, it's really um, I found shocking to see that it. I didn't realize it is as um, as bad as it is in terms of the lack of diversity in how the funding rates look. It, it's a really important piece and a really important issue that the NIH needs to to figure out how to deal with.
1: Yeah, I agree. Wow, what an, what an important issue. Um, I, I hope we can make some progress on that. So I mentioned uh, that we had uh, talked about. IBM Watson and Watson for health in class, uh, the other day. And the wall street journal reported on February 18th that IBM is thinking of selling off its Watson for health business. I was, um, a bit surprised to hear this. Um, and here's a, here's a quote uh, from the, the wall street journal piece. And they say, IBM is exploring a potential sale of its IBM Watson health business. According to people familiar with the matter, as the technology giant's new chief executive moves to streamline the company and become more competitive in cloud computing. IBM is studying alternatives for the unit that could include a sale to a private equity firm, an industry player, or a merger with a blank check company, the people said. The unit, which employs artificial intelligence to help hospitals, insurers, and drug makers manage their data has roughly $1 billion in annual revenue and isn't currently profitable, the people said. So yeah, I was I was a little surprised by this. I mean, Watson is such a, an amazing technology, um, and it, it's kind of hard for me to believe that it generates a billion dollars in annual revenue but can't be profitable. Uh, so I don't know what they're doing over there, but it um, uh, seems like, I don't know. Uh, I can understand why IBM would want to focus on cloud computing, because they're getting blown away by Amazon and Google and other cloud companies and are falling behind. but but Watson's just such an interesting, exciting technology. And you kind of have to wonder who who would buy Watson? If it's a money loser, who would who would want to invest in it and sink sink you know lots of money into it? And i The first thing that comes to mind when I think about who might buy Watson is China. imagine if if China buys Watson, what they would do with it? So anyway, interesting to think about. We'll we'll, uh, keep you updated as uh, the news develops around IBM. Okay, I have a couple tweets I wanted to mention before we wrap up the news for the day. Um, The first is from Dr. Jennifer Polk, um, who's on Twitter as at from PhD to life. And she tweeted this today, this morning, um, and I quote, when it came to figuring out your career path, what did you need to learn? So this is a question. um, And, uh, you know, I I actually responded to this tweet and I said, for me, the key was following my passions, trusting my instincts, and importantly, not listening to all the naysayers that are out there. Um, You know, for example, um, when I was finishing my PhD, I got uh, an offer to take a faculty position at Vanderbilt as an assistant professor, thus skipping my postdoc. And I talked to a lot of people and every single faculty member, every professor I talked to warned me against skipping the postdoc and insisted that it was a very important step in the process. And of course I didn't listen to any of them and I can now look back and say with complete and utter confidence that they were all dead wrong. That was bad advice for me. It may not be bad advice for you, but that was bad advice for me. So I trusted my instincts, and that's how I got on my career path.
0: And I would say that I got the exact same advice that you did for all from all faculty, except for you, who said, <laughs> don't listen to them. I also didn't listen to them and skipped the postdoc. And 20 years later, I'm not sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay. And then uh, one last tweet um, I saw today uh, is from Heather McComber uh, at HC McComber uh, about the pressure to work on weekends. And she wrote, and I quote, this is your annual reminder that not working weekends should be considered normal and expected and not a luxury or time off. And uh, she's absolutely right, and and I think it's a a worthy goal, and we all strive to have our weekends free, and I I love it when I have a weekend free. Um, doesn't happen very often, but um, it's something we all wish we had, and and there's no question it would be better for our mental health. But what I would say, and this is what I re- what I wrote back on Twitter um, about this is, you know, it, it's a great goal, but. There are always going to be scientists who are willing to work on weekends and will out compete you for funding for jobs and awards. And so I think we can all strive to have our weekends free, but it's this weird catch 22. We need weekends off for our mental health, but if others aren't working weekends, they're the ones that are going to get the promotion, get the job, get the grant. So I don't know. It's this is a difficult, um, uh, you know, a, a, a difficult issue, and and maybe we should have a more in depth discussion about this sometime, Marilyn.
0: I think it would be good to talk about because I I've had that conversation with various trainees who will ask me, you know, do you work weekends? I'm like, well, it depends on the weekend, and and it depends on the week. So sometimes I have to work on the weekend to make up for the fact that I didn't get much done during the week for other reasons. You know, I you know, had a lot of calls and didn't get to even get through my email or I had family things to do that, you know, during the work day. And so I'm catching up. So yes, I'm working, but it's because I had other time. Um, But then to your point about mental health, you know, this past weekend, I could not work. I physically could not possibly have done work because last week was very intense and I needed two and a half days of, mindless activity. So um I think it's really important, you know, to pay attention to your mental health and your your efficiency and productivity, you know. So it really doesn't do you any good if you sit in front of your computer for 10 hours on the weekend but you actually get nothing done because you're so burnt out. And and so it's a matter of like yeah, maybe you need to work a little bit, but maybe you don't need to stare at the computer for 10 hours. So I think it's worth talking about, you know, how do we you know, how do we survive working the weekend and it, I think for both of us it's because we don't work until 2am on the weekdays. We both kind of work till the end of the work day we get offline we have dinner with our families and have the evening off. You know, I think, in that way we've had some balance during the week and so if you have to get online on Saturday morning, maybe it's not as big of a deal but the people who are working, you know, 9am till 2am and then weekends like I think they're just being inefficient and they're actually probably not being very productive.
1: Yeah, all really good points. Okay, that's it for the news for today.
0: Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, ideas for topics and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. As mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we will pick a recent paper for discussion. Today, we will discuss federated learning of electronic health records to improve mortality prediction in hospitalized patients with COVID-19 machine learning approach. By Vade et al. in Jmir Medical Informatics from January of 2021. Jason will introduce the paper.
1: Thanks, Marilyn. I really enjoyed reading this paper, and this this comes out of our friend uh, Ben Glicksberg's lab, and. Um, the uh, The papers really focused on this idea of federated versus centralized data models for, in this case, specifically for covid nineteen. and And for those not familiar with this topic, the basic idea of uh, a federated versus centralized approach is that in a in a centralized approach, what you want to do is aggregate, harmonize, and aggregate, electronic health record data, other types of data into one central database so that you can analyze all the data together. And and so the advantage of that is that the data is in one place, it's all together, you can analyze all of it. The downside, of course, is privacy and security concerns, especially if you're aggregating data from multiple different institutions. So to address that, um, there is the federated approach where the data stays locally at your institution. You do your analysis, and then you aggregate the results, which do not have privacy concerns, centrally uh, to 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 communicate um, to communicate findings. And in the COVID nineteen space, there are a lot of uh, different efforts that have been set up uh, for studying COVID nineteen. There's the N3C consortium that we've mentioned previously on the podcast, which is taking a centralized approach, putting all the data in one place. And then as a counterexample, there's the 4CE consortium, which is using a federated approach to the analysis of COVID data. Both, Both approaches have their strengths and weaknesses. And so what I really like about this paper is it introduces a federated approach to machine learning for predicting seven day mortality for patients hospitalized with COVID-19. And so there there are really nice statistical methods. Um, I've been a co-author on some of those papers on, on running the statistical analysis locally on each data set, and then taking the likelihood functions, for example, if you're using regression, and then there are ways to put those together to achieve an overall result that that has equal power to find statistical associations without sacrificing privacy and security. And so the question that this paper addresses is, okay, how do we do that with machine learning? It's a little more complicated with machine learning. So in this paper, uh, they had access to patient data from five different hospitals that are part of the Mount Sinai health system. Uh, and the size of the data sets ranged from 500 to 1,500 patients for each site. And the combined cohort had about 4,000 patients. And they used two different machine learning methods. They had a lasso-based logistic regression and a multilayer perceptron. And so here's the basic idea: is that you run the machine learning, both machine learning methods, on the local data at each site. And then you take the parameters, the tuned parameters, uh, and, and then send those to the other site so they can rerun the analysis with the optimized parameters from the other site. And there's this give and take of passing parameters back and forth, rerunning machine learning analysis. And the idea is to try to uh, coalesce on a set of parameters that everybody uses to do the machine learning analysis across all the sites in a federated way. So it's um, a pretty simple, I would say a simple approach to uh, this question of how do you do machine learning in a federated way, but but a, but a neat one. I kind of like the idea. So they use um, area under the ROC curve as their quality metric for the machine learning. And they also use a 70-30 data split for each of the individual uh, sets to do cross validation. And one of the things I really liked about the papers is they did bootstrapping. So they resampled each of the data sets with replacement, rerunning the machine learning to get the sampling distribution of the area under the ROC curve so they could put comp- 95% confidence intervals on their estimates. So that was a, a, a really nice part of the paper. Um, and you know if, if you can, that's certainly what you should do. And so they specifically compared uh, running the machine learning analyses locally. Uh, on each local data set. So you have one, you just run it on the local data set without any information from the other site. So that's what they call the local analysis. And then they did the federated approach where they shared the parameters across the different sites to try to optimize the parameters. And then they compared that with a pooled approach where because this is all part of the same health system, they had the opportunity to aggregate all the data centrally. To compare the machine learning results on all the data, if you had it, if you happen to to be able to centralize it. So, they present some tables in the paper where they compare the area under the ROC curve across these different scenarios. And as you would expect, the pooled data always or almost always has the best performance. The federated approach had the next best performance. And the local approach, where you don't share any information, had the worst performance. There were a few exceptions, but that was generally what they saw across the different sites. So I I like this paper. I think it's one of the first that I've seen to explore federated machine learning, and especially for COVID-19 EHR data. Um, The authors in their discussion did note a few weaknesses of the paper, which I agree with. Uh, First of all, this was specific to Mount Sinai. It wasn't extended to other health systems, either across the U.S. or in other countries around the world. It was really a proof of principle, um, and, and I would say some you know, very preliminary results. It only included clinical data. Uh, they didn't have genomics data or other types of data, and they only used two different machine learning models. It would have been nice to extend this to maybe you know five or ten different machine learning methods. But anyway, so uh, my comments about the paper, I thought it's a a good start. It's an important problem. Um, There's a lot of potential. It's a hot area. And um, as I said, I agree with them. They need more machine learning methods. Um, I think they needed better parameter optimization. I would have loved to have seen a a grid search or maybe something like uh, the Optuna package for tuning parameters or automated machine learning could be interesting in this federated way. Uh, maybe if, maybe they could focus on that for a follow up paper. Um, I think there could be more interesting ways to integrate and iterate the parameters centrally across the machine learning methods at each of the sites. Um, also, maybe um, a topic for a future paper. And I would love to see this scale to one of the big consortium like Odyssey or Four CE that use a federated data approach. So anyway, it's a it's a great paper. It's a great start. Nice job, um, you know, Ben and team, and. Look forward to more work in this area. I think it's really important. Um, Marilyn, did you um, have any thoughts about this paper?
0: Yeah, thank you for that discussion. I thought this was a great paper. Um, I just had two other kind of thoughts uh, about um, I don't know that they're limitations, but just kind of in thinking about the future directions, just points to think about. One is um, how much. what the feasibility really looks like around the deploying of the machine learning at multiple sites to then do that federated approach just thinking about different software deployments you know you really need to make sure that all of the sites that you would want to launch something like this are have the same capability and capacity to run the algorithms and i know certainly with with other software you know, implementations, you know, just trying to get two sites, much less, you know, three or four, six or eight to run the same tool. Like it just sounds like an easy thing, but sometimes it's so time consuming to get just packages installed and running the same way. Same way. And, you know, you run that same test data sets and make sure that it works the same on all the different infrastructures. So well, I really like this approach, but that that's one piece that um, I just think getting getting wrap, your head wrapped around, you know, what is the, the feasibility of kind of federating that piece of it and making sure that all of the sites participating can run the software or the method effectively. And then the other is, um, I like their approach of the parameter tuning and sharing across the sites and having some sort of centralized way to do that. But it occurred to me, you know, especially if you think about doing this across health systems, not just within one across, you know, locations, but if you were doing this in Odyssey or in 4CE, you know, yes, we've done a lot of work to standardize the data models. And so I think that's not the issue that that my head went to, but we know that there are biases in kind of how the health systems use their EHR and what coding practices they have, what tests they order, um, which insurance plans are more commonly used at their location, which then determines which follow-up labs or follow-up tests are run. And so it occurred to me that the underlying data itself just might have systematic biases that are really driven by health system. And so it could be the case that you actually don't want the exact same parameters tuned in the same way at each of the locations, but you might have to do some local tuning to kind of deal with some of those systematic biases that exist at some sites and not others. Um, again, that's like a, not something they missed in this paper, but you know, as this expands, just something for them to think about it. I think it's, it adds a layer of complexity, but, but I think an important one to deal with.
1: Yeah, those are really good points. And to your first point, you know, I, to my horror, discovered recently that um, uh, that the scikit-learn library uh, that we use for a lot of our machine learning in Python gives different results on different operating systems. No. Yes, and uh, because we're we're trying to release um, a new benchmark set of data. And we've been running multiple machine learning methods on all these benchmark data sets for this first paper that we're about to submit. And uh, my programmer, Patrick, had the foresight to try it on different operating systems just, just to make sure it worked and we got the same results and we did not get the same results. And so something to be aware of is, you know, if you're if you're running machine, what you think is the same machine learning algorithm at these, you know, five different sites. If each site's using a different operating system, you could get different results. Um, and so something to be aware of. Um, now, four CE, I think the four CE consortium, I think is is addressing this by building Docker containers that are shared across all the sites. So you you construct a Docker container with the same operating system and in the case of 4CE, we're using R to do the initial analysis. So everybody has the same R package, the same R, uh, the same version, the same operating system all in a Docker container. You put your data in there and then you, you run your script. And if you find something interesting, you share your script with the other sites and they run it. And, and because it's all standardized, then you you're sure you're comparing apples with apples.
0: Yeah, no, it makes sense. Now that you're saying that, I remember, you know, just even in grad school running tests between, you know, sun branded Unix and Linux. And just things like the random seed generation is different. And so any of these machine learning algorithms that have any stochastic elements. Yeah, if you cross operating systems, they probably have slight variations in just how they generate random seeds and Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like something akin to a Docker container would work for something like this.
1: Yeah. So be careful if you're, uh, if you're doing machine learning in a federated way to make sure you're using the same operating system and the same, the exact same version of, you know, of the machine learning software. Um, so anyway, it's a great paper, um, a lot of work to do in this space, but this is a good start. And uh, we have a, a link to the paper here on the show notes.
0: Now on to our software segment. Jason is going to introduce the Julia call package in
1: R. Thanks, Marilyn. So first, if you're not familiar with Julia, uh, I think it's it's a really great up-and-coming programming language uh, gaining recognition recognition because you know it's fairly easy to use, like Python, but its speed is much more comparable to C++, making it much faster than Python. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, we just ported our evolutionary by clustering algorithm EBIC from uh, Python to Julia. And indeed it was much faster and we just submitted a paper on this. Um, that's kind of my first foray into Julia but uh, have been very impressed with the, the speed up over Python. Uh, fortunately, with this package, you can take advantage of Julia's speed by calling it from R using the Julia call package available from CRAN. Uh, The latest uh, update for this package includes an install Julia function, which will install Julia for you from R so that you don't have to do that yourself. Um, So if you use R and speed is important, definitely check out Julia and the Julia call package. And we have links here to the Julia language at julialanguage.org and uh, the CRAN R um, uh, project uh, for Julia call. My name is Zach Kohane, and I'm the Marion V. Nelson Professor of Biomedical Informatics and Chair of the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. You are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our open data segment. Marilyn is going to tell us about a new piece in Nature from February 3rd on calls from scientists to fully open sharing of coronavirus genome data.
0: Thanks, Jason. Sharing is critical for making scientific progress on understanding and slowing the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. Uh, Here's a quote from this piece. Researchers have posted huge numbers of SARS-CoV-2 genome sequences online since January of 2020. The most popular data sharing platform, called GISAID, now hosts more than 450,000 viral genomes. Shuma Swaminathan, the chief scientist at the World Health Organization, has called it a game changer in the pandemic but it doesn't allow sequences to be reshared publicly, which is hampering efforts to understand the coronavirus and the rapid rise of new variants, argues Rolf Apweiler, co-director of the European Bioinformatics Institute near Cambridge in the UK, which hosts its own large genome database that includes SARS-CoV-2 sequences. The openness of SARS-CoV-2 sequences Sequence data is crucial for the rapid response against the biggest health threat to humankind in a very, very long time, says Appweiler. We have a link to the show notes in the show notes to this nature piece. With that said, there are over 250,000 publicly available sequences available for analysis. A recent perspective in science that we'll also link to in the show notes summarizes some of the insights from those public data, including results from phylogenetic phylogenetic analysis. Um, These pieces are important. And I think that uh, we have certainly seen more sharing of health record data because of the coronavirus pandemic that we've ever seen before. And it is because of that, that we are actually starting to make strides in understanding the disease and developing therapeutics at a a pace that is more rapid than has ever been done for any virus before and so I agree with these pieces that we absolutely you know we cannot have any systems holding on to the the viral genome data especially when we're starting to hear about new variants and new mutations arising in different strains all of that data needs to be public luckily a lot of it is but uh I would encourage the field that the rest who have sequences that aren't publicly available, you know, this is not a time to, to worry about who gets something done first. We have to get this figured out so that we have vaccines that are effective.
1: Yeah, I, I agree, Marilyn. I I just can't imagine not making these sequences publicly available. It's, you know, we're, we're in crisis mode. We're all suffering and the data should be available. Absolutely. Okay, now on to our conferences segment. Marilyn's going to kick us off.
0: Great. Thanks. Thanks, Jason. Uh, The AMIA virtual informatics summit will be held online from March 22nd to the 25th of this year with a focus on translational bioinformatics, clinical research informatics, implementation informatics, and data science. The AMIA Virtual Clinical Informatics Conference will be held online from May 18th to the 20th of this year with a focus on value based care, informatics response to COVID 19, and EDI or equity, diversity, and inclusion. We will have links to both of these conferences in the show notes.
1: The American Medical Informatics Association annual symposium will be held this year in San Diego, October 30th uh, through November 3rd. And as of now, they're planning to hold this conference in person. I hope that comes to pass. Boy, wouldn't it be great to go to tra- be able to travel to San Diego and for it to be safe to do so. Um, Papers are due before midnight on March 10th, and uh, hopefully this episode will be out before then, so you can get the heads up, but uh, if not, put it on your schedule for next year. I'll also mention the Intelligent Systems in Molecular Biology, or ISMB conference, which is sponsored by the International Society for Computational Biology, will be held virtually July 26th through 30th of this year. The paper deadline has already passed, but the abstract deadline is May 6. This is the biggest uh, bioinformatics computational biology conference and really good one if you've never been. Definitely worth attending. And since it's virtual, this might be your chance to to attend for the first time.
0: And I have just one more to add. The Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing 2022 meeting is uh, in the planning stages. The session proposals were due in February and the organizing committee is going through them now. The sessions will be announced probably in the second week of March. Papers are typically due in the summer. So stay tuned and be on the lookout. The plan right now is that that meeting will be in January of 2022 in person back on the Big Island of Hawaii. So we all have our fingers crossed that that happens.
1: Fingers crossed for sure. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is how to deal with senior faculty who don't have your best interests in mind. Marilyn will introduce the topic.
0: All right, thank you, Jason. This is such a challenging topic for me to broach, um, especially you know, for a person like me who, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am very much an optimist, almost to the point of being like a Pollyanna. Like I, I always want to believe that people are generally good with the best of intentions and would not, you know, do something nefarious. And and sadly, it's not always true. And I'm always so disappointed when I learn about these uh, individuals who who really don't have the best interests of Junior faculty in mind, and and I almost feel naive that that I want to believe the best, and that I'm kind of frustrated with myself that I it's like I failed to see the truth in in someone. But um, it's just a really important issue because there are a lot of senior faculty who do have the best interests in mind of junior faculty, and there are others who really just don't. So I think some important things to think about. You know, faculty are valuable. Their time, their resources, their ideas. For junior faculty, these may even be more precious resources because their clock is ticking. They have, in particular, for the ones on, you know, certainly on the tenure track, they have a tenure clock that's ticking. For the ones that are on, you know, a, a different type of track, a clinic, clinician educator type track, they still have a promotion timeline. They have a certain number of years before they need to be evaluated and get promoted to the next level. And so their time and their ideas, you know, they're precious. They don't have unlimited time. And so when you encounter a senior faculty member who is taking advantage of you, and, you know, as a junior faculty, you feel it, um, it you need to to think through kind of, you know, how do I deal with this? So my first piece of advice is to talk to a mentor that you trust and get their perspective. I think you know, figuring out whether what you're being asked to do by that senior faculty member, um, does it even make sense? You know, Is it something that is helpful to you and you just don't realize it, or are they taking advantage of you? Maybe it's really not a good thing for you to do, but sometimes junior faculty um, whats oh, there's a phrase can't can't see the forest from the trees like they're so focused on the details that they miss the big picture and sometimes a senior faculty member fails to communicate the big picture and they're asking for some detailed thing that as a junior faculty they they feel like they're being taken advantage of and maybe they're not maybe it really is that you know in the big picture like this is why this thing is helpful to them as the junior faculty member and so that's why I think it's so important to find a mentor that you trust to get their perspective. Are you um, are you being paranoid about being taken advantage of, or are you being taken advantage of? And what they're asking you to do is inappropriate. Um, and then if it is inappropriate, you know, get advice on how to handle it, especially if the mentor knows the person. Um, you know, there are unique personalities in science, um, probably not different from other fields, you know, as well. But certainly scientists, you know personalities are different. And knowing what tactic will work for handling that situation um, from a mentor that you trust could be really helpful. Um, Another thing that I think it's important to do is to talk to someone who's not in science to get their perspective. Uh, I think sometimes, especially in academia, I can't speak as much for industry, but in academia, we can get so kind of wrapped up in the mindset of what we deal with that we might not have kind of a full kind of deep perspective on what's happening. And so um, if you can talk to someone not in the field to just get a, a sense of you know, is this type of um, type of behavior something that's commonly seen you know in the career world, or is this a unique situation that that really somebody's taking advantage of you? Um, depending on how bad the situation is, I think figuring out your strategy to deal with it is uh, is critical. You, know, you could take active strategies. You can tell the person no when they request that you do things. Uh, sometimes that works and sometimes people don't take no for an answer. Um, you could tell them that you can't do all of the things that they're asking of you. Um, you could consider having a direct conversation about the issue, Uh, There's a great book called Crucial Conversations. I'm blanking on the the author right now, but um, it's hard to have those conversations. And it can be delicate. And this is where talking to a mentor about that personality of the person to know, you know, how will the conversation about this be perceived. Um, But sometimes the conversation about it is what's needed. Um, There are also passive strategies that, you know, I, I tend to try to encourage the active approach. Um, but sometimes that doesn't work. And so passive strategies of you know being too busy to join all of the meetings they're asking you to join and um, or being too busy to do what they ask, sometimes it is just a way to mitigate some of the, the issues that where they're taking advantage. Um, and then going to either your mentor committee or chair. You know, that's part of what they're there for is to help junior faculty Deal with situations now. Sometimes it's members of the mentor committee or the chair that are uh, the egregious ones that are problematic, and that's where you know finding a more senior person, a mentor that you can trust um, to get advice on the politics of that committee or the politics around your chair are really key. Um, and then what's probably obvious, but um, I definitely tell people like when you've had bad interactions with a senior faculty member in the future say no to new opportunities. You know, you end up writing an entire grant for someone, they make you a co-investigator, they submit the grant, it gets funded, and then they cut your effort and they give no effort to your lab, but you wrote the grant for them. Like that's egregious, but I've heard of that happening. Next time they ask you to write a grant together, absolutely say no. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't have time. I'm already working on a grant. Don't make that mistake twice. Um, and then avoid working with them as much as you can, or even being on committees with them. Uh, you know, it it's just easy for some people to continue to take advantage once they've once they've had a, a success with someone, they kind of have them on their list of people they can go back to. And so, I do think kind of once you've kind of dealt with one issue, avoid that person as much as you can, um, and it's reasonable. Those were my thoughts, uh, Jason. I know this came about because. Uh, I think it came about on Twitter. Maybe somebody had asked about this, or you had tweeted about it not long ago. So, so what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I had I had seen this come up on Twitter, and some somebody asked this question, and uh, I thought it would make a good a good discussion topic. And I let me let me first say um, I have had pretty much everything happened to me in my career and have, have certainly had numerous senior faculty take advantage of me in, in lots of different ways. And I like your advice, Marilyn, about avoiding them. I mean, that's been my approach is when somebody crosses me and mistreats me or tries to take advantage of me, then I just write them off the list and, and avoid them and don't work with them again. Sometimes that's hard to do, but that's that's been my general approach. And I like your advice about talking to mentors. I think that's really important. Uh, Don't just take it. You know, talk to somebody. Talk to somebody you trust and get their advice about how how to handle the situation. Sometimes another senior faculty member, mentor, can intervene in a difficult situation, like with a department chair, for example, on your behalf and 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 try to smooth things over. But I thought I'd mention three three things that have come up. you know, I mentor a lot of people, and so I I get I have to deal with this a lot. Um, and so I thought I'd give three examples of of how young people I know uh, have been have been mistreated, um, or or potentially mistreated. And the the first one kind of kind of involves me. I had somebody come to me, um, a senior faculty member with a lot of funding, big grant, come to me and say, Hey, you know, we've got all this data. Uh, Do you have a post? You know, we're looking for a postdoc to clean clean up all this data. And uh, you know, my first response was: first of all, I don't make my postdocs clean data. Um, I think that's something a staff member should do. You should be employ a staff analyst or data scientist to do your data cleaning. We shouldn't be using postdocs to do that. Postdocs should be doing research and publishing papers and getting ready for the next step in their career. So saddling postdocs with busy data cleaning work is just not a very nice thing to do. So so I said no on that front. And then the other thing I said is, well, we'd be happy to collaborate with you. And once you get the data clean, let us know. Um, You know, happy to find a postdoc who would be willing to do the analysis and write a paper as first author. And they weren't interested in that either. They weren't interested in the postdocs having first authorship on their papers. So, uh, so that was a potentially bad situation that that I diffused, and I protected my postdocs from getting involved with a group that clearly just wanted to use them as slave labor and not help them develop their academic careers. So that's something to be to be careful of, you know, especially if you're a postdoc or a junior faculty who might find yourself being used in that way. Uh, it's not something you should be doing. Uh, The second example, of course, that comes up over and over and over again, and I've been the subject of this many, 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 many times in my career, is authorship, that uh, I've seen this so many times, a junior faculty member will develop an idea, do the research, engage a senior faculty member as a collaborator, and then when things start getting interesting, when it looks like the paper is going to be a high-impact paper, the senior faculty member swoops in and demands senior authorship and demands the credit for the paper. And so this is probably the most common senior faculty abuse is stealing authorship credit from junior people. This comes up all the time. And so if you find yourself in that situation, there, you know, certainly seek out a mentor and get advice about how to handle it. Do not give up your authorship. Um, that is not something you should be should be doing, um, uh, but this this comes up so frequently. Um, and and the other thing you can do is you know when you start a project and ask somebody to be a collaborator, uh, get in it. You know, lay out the paper and the authorship. Write down the title of the paper and the list of authors and the authorship order. And, and get that in writing and agreed to before you start the project. And that way, if it becomes an issue later, you can say, well, look, we agreed to the authorship before we started the study. And that puts you on a much stronger footing if, if, if it comes time to dispute it. Uh, the third one I'll mention is, is maybe less common, but I've seen it a few times in my career, is that junior faculty are given startup packages to get their career started And somebody came to a junior, a senior person with a big grant came to a junior person and said, Hey, I want you to help on my grant, but I don't want to give you any money. I want you to use your startup package to help me with my grant. And that is a big, no, no, that is, that is unethical to ask somebody to use their startup package to help you and your research Startup is to help the faculty member, the junior faculty member, get their own research off the ground, not any other senior faculty member's research. So if you find yourself in that situation, that's unacceptable, it's unethical, and you should definitely talk to a mentor and not agree to do that. So anyway, those are three quick examples. But I've, these are real examples. They come up all the time. And, and I would say each one of them is unethical um, in, in different ways. It is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Marilyn, any closing thoughts?
0: Yeah, thanks, Jason. Well, as you were talking about San Diego earlier, it hit me that my last time on an airplane was almost exactly one year ago to the day, flying from California back to Pennsylvania. It was on March 4th of 2020. So it has been almost a year since i have been on an airplane and on the one hand i can't say i miss airplanes though i am missing um travel and you know seeing my colleagues from around the country and around the world and seeing interesting places you know it's been a a lifetime since i have spent all of the winter in pennsylvania i usually get a few Trips to reprieve to somewhere warm. This this past year has been the first that I haven't left Pennsylvania, you know, through the winter months. So um, I'm just thinking a lot about, uh, you know, the the change in conferences and what that's going to look like over the the next few years, as well as, um, you know, for us folks in informatics, what is work. Gonna look like, you know, we're we're nearing one year of working from home. I remember when we first started talking about this a year ago, we thought it would be till the summer. We were thinking June or July back when you know we went home in mid March of 2020. But here we are with no sign of going back um, anytime too soon. So um, I think it'd be interesting to to uh, to think a little bit more about what it what does informatic work life look like you know, once the vaccine is widely distributed, will we go back in five days a week? Will it be two or three days a week? Um, And, and how long is COVID kind of these COVID EHR projects and genomics projects here to stay? As we were talking about some of those papers earlier, and, and some of the news, you know, I remember thinking in April, May, know, we just have to get through the summer and then all this COVID research will go away too. And I feel like it's ramping up. Um, So I don't know, I'm just sitting here thinking about, you know, how long is COVID-19 here in terms of work life, in terms of travel, in terms of our science. And it'll be interesting, you know, a year from now to to see how much COVID is a part of the podcast. Um, Jason, how about you?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you, and and I've I've caught myself starting to feel optimistic. You know that that things are going to get better, that things are going to get back to some sort of new normal that that uh, in the fall, and we'll be able to travel again. And every time I get excited and and am feeling optimistic, I have to remind myself. That we've suffered so many months of disappointment this last year. Every time we felt optimistic that things were going to end and things were going to get better, they didn't. So I don't know. I'm, I guess I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. We'll we'll see how it plays out, but um, I'm, I'm hopeful. But yeah, I agree with you. I think COVID-19 research is here to stay, at least for the next five years. It's It's not going away. It's something that's going to affect all of us for a long time. And, uh, you know, eventually we all may, will probably be infected with COVID and have to deal, some of us will have to deal with those lifetime of health issues, uh, health sequela, you know, related to, to COVID infection. It's, it's just going to be part of human life, unfortunately. Um, but one of the things I've been thinking about, um, as I mentioned in the last segment, I, I, I do a lot of mentoring and I have a lot of people call me and ask for advice of different kinds. And one of the, one of the most common conversations I have with people, especially junior faculty is around writing NIH grants. And it's so hard to get your first NIH grant funded, your first NIH R01. Um, And every junior faculty member stresses endlessly about this. And, you know, and after 20 plus years of doing this, I, I, Feel like I understand the system pretty well. I have a lot of experience writing grants, getting grants funded, the ins and outs of the NIH, the politics, um, and and I'm 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 in a position now where I feel like I can really lay out strategies and lay out clear advice and teach people, teach junior faculty how the system works, and 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 they're so appreciative. But, but part of me thinks, you know, why does it have to be so darn complicated? Why do you have to have 20 years of NIH grant writing experience to have that kind of wisdom and know-how to teach other people? Why, why does it have to be so complicated? We're really doing our junior faculty, junior scientists a disservice by making the system uh so utterly complex and and obscure and confusing and it's it's just not right and i don't know what to do about it other than just keep giving as much advice as i can and but i i, I really love seeing the eyes open of people when i tell them these things and just you know this invaluable advice they're getting from their mentors about how to navigate this very complex system. So so I'll just leave with that closing thought, you know, why does the NIH grant funding system have to be so darn complicated? That's it for today. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you'll be able to find some time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.